Welcome to the Financial Coaches Podcast, where we talk about how to build your practice from startup to scale up while being the kind of coach your clients crave. Finally, a podcast for financial coaches. Here are your hosts, Maria Casillas and Cody Sizemore. Hello and welcome back to the Financial Coaches Podcast. My name is Cody Sizemore and I'm joined here by my lovely co-host Maria Casillas as well as someone who's a very special guest, which we will get to in just a second. But first, we want to just remind you guys that we appreciate you and that we love to be able to connect with you in different ways. And actually, that's how we got connected with our guests today. Um, so, you know, we have a few ways for you to connect with us. The, the biggest one is to be a part of our Facebook group, which is New Money Habits Financial Coaches on Facebook. It's free to join. There's a, you know, it's a growing community. And we host different types of events in there on a weekly and also monthly basis that you're welcome to join uh, and be a part of. So definitely hop in there if you're not in there yet. And if you have been listening every week, you, we would call you the every weekers, which we really appreciate as well. Um, if you've been listening every week or maybe it's your first time listening and you get some value from today, the only ask that we have is that you drop a a rating or you follow us or you subscribe to it or whatever it might be. Um, that's really, really helpful. It helps other people find the show and uh, get some impacts through there. Um, and, you know, we don't do anything with ads or anything like that. So, you know, it's a really good way to help us out. And if you really, really liked it, man, if you could share it, that would be sweet. If you have like this cohort of like, different financial coaches, friends that you're like, yo, check this out. This is awesome. So that would be awesome. But anyways, let's get right into it. Maria, how you doing? Doing really well. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation today. Yeah, I am too. I am too, especially because we do have their special guest with us. Mm -hmm. And that special guest is none other than Seth Connell. Seth, how you doing, man? Doing well. Thank you all for having me. We're looking uh, forward to our conversation today. Absolutely, man. We are too, dude. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, I'm sure the listeners are kind of curious about you as well. So, you know, tell us about yourself, maybe how you got started, what you're doing now, you know, what your specialties are, all that kind of stuff, man. Just let loose. Sure. So uh, so I live a little outside Nashville, uh, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. My wife and I moved here at the end of 2022. There's kind of a bit of a long story there. I spent about 10 years in Virginia in the Hampton Roads area. I grew up uh, on Long Island in, in New York. So I've kind of been a little all over for, for a while mm -hmm. here, but just outside Nashville is where we ended up. Uh, I've been coaching since the end of 2018, so coming up on about five years now. Uh, I took Ramsey Solutions Financial Coach Master Training uh, about six months or so after my wife and I became debt-free that year. Uh, I was very passionate uh, and still am about helping folks achieve financial freedom, uh, the same freedom that we experienced ourselves. And so I decided to start up my own practice to do that, and I just kind of went <clears throat> went all out on it ever since. So I started in late 2018, uh, started growing more in 2019. Uh, along the way, I decided that I wanted to go to law school as well. So my wife and I set out with this uh, countercultural goal of going to law school 100% debt free. So I took the LSAT, uh, I did uh, some prep courses for that, did applications to different schools, negotiated with the uh, admissions committee for scholarship dollars, and decided to go to my undergraduate alma mater in Virginia Beach. And I uh, went there for three years from August of 19 until May of 22. 
And uh, it was really difficult, but we did manage to graduate 100% debt-free using the principles uh, and the practices that I teach. And so took the bar exam last July, passed in the first attempt. Thank, thank the Lord for that. Uh, so I've continued to keep on coaching because I love what I do. It's really, really fun. And I decided that I also wanted to practice independently as an attorney as well, uh, helping folks with estate planning and small business matters here in the state of Tennessee. So I have two different businesses for that. Uh, my LLC is my financial coaching, and then I have a PLLC for law practice. The two businesses kind of complement each other. My knowledge bases uh, really help out on various things that I can see, but I love each thing that I do, and I hope to continue helping folks build wealth as their coach and pass on and protect it as their estate planning attorney. So that's that's what I'm here to do. Amazing. Awesome, man. Awesome. That's a pretty impressive feat, mm -hmm. uh, you know, paying for law school without having to go into debt for it. Like usually when you hear large student loan bills, it's because you're either a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, so the fact that you went through law school and you did it, you know, you cash flowed it and didn't accumulate any sort of debt, bro, that is like, I mean, I'm going to give it up to you, man. Like that is, that is awesome, man. Uh, and passing the exam on the first try. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, too. that's the, that's the <laughs> other thing too. We got a smart guy in the room right now. I know. I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit intimidated. I don't. <laughs> yeah. So that's awesome, man. Um, I know that, um, you know, when we were talking uh, before we hit record, we were kind of talking about like, like, okay, like, what do you want to talk about today? And it really boiled down to two things, which I think are really, really important. One is one that we've actually talked about a little bit in previous episodes, which is just business structures for coaches. But we would love to hear your take on it because, of course, there's so He's smarter many than us. Takes. Yeah, and and you're smarter than I us too. So that, and then also, um, you know, estate planning as well. Uh, so I think that we start with the business structures, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, man, just take it away, man. You know, I know that you've got some some ideas and you've got some structures of your own that you feel very strongly about and that you feel are uh, very beneficial to to different types of coaches. So, you know, just take it away, man. Um, what's what's like the most important thing for a coach to know about how to structure their business and how do they go about all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so there's there's a couple different ways that you can go uh, when forming your practice or if you're kind of expanding out. Uh, really. I think kind of the two main business structures that most coaches have are going to be sole proprietorship or an LLC. Uh, mm -hmm. Most businesses, the LLC, uh, it's kind of the way a lot of places are going now for new business formation. It used to be that we had just a sole proprietorship or a partnership uh, or a corporation, but an LLC, a limited liability company, uh, these are fairly new in terms of uh, the legal system creating that. And an LLC is really a blend of a sole proprietorship and a corporation. Uh, corporations have a lot of formalities that we have to follow. There's record-keeping requirements. There's a board of directors. Uh, there's regular meetings. There's lots of things that are involved with that. With LLCs, uh, you kind of have a lot of relaxation of those formalities, but we still have the protection of the corporate veil in the event of a dispute with somebody. So it's kind of getting getting the best of both worlds with an LLC. We have the flexibility of a sole proprietorship or a general partnership, but we also have the protection of your personal assets with the corporate veil. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the LLC. 
That said, uh, there's still some things that folks have to do if they're going to do an LLC, and it's important to make sure they're done right so that the LLC actually works for you. But, but which should you choose? Let's kind of start off with that question. And when somebody comes to me asking about what type of business entity they should choose, I, I often think about what type of industry are they in. Uh, if they're in a retail type of space where folks are coming onto the premises and they're selling different products, I really think uh, and I really strongly advise against doing a sole proprietorship because there's no legal distinction between you and the business. The business mm -hmm. license is in your name. <clears throat> uh, your personal assets are on there. It doesn't matter if you have a DBA doing business as a separate business bank account. It's still your name that's responsible for these things and making sure your insurance policies for commercial lines of insurance, uh, if you're in a professional type of occupation, uh, having malpractice insurance, things like that. If you're a sole proprietor, that does fall on you individually. So with products liability or folks coming onto your premises and taking a slip, uh, thinking that they might get a nice payday, that's pretty risky having your personal assets that are out there. For coaches though, we're kind of a, a unique industry in that a lot of times we don't have a physical location that folks will come to us. And I found 80, 90%, maybe more of coaches uh, are virtual where they'll have a home-based office and they'll do Zoom meetings or they'll meet in coffee shops or maybe they'll meet in a financial planner's office. And so that's kind of already covered already, uh, libraries, places like that. So different types of things that we have in our industry. But in order to determine if a sole proprietorship or an LLC is appropriate, the question to really ask uh, that a lot of coaches think about is, well, I don't have the revenue for it, or when I reach a certain revenue threshold, that's when an LLC makes sense. But it's really not so much in my mind, uh, and some folks may disagree, but in my mind, it's not so much a question of what revenue level you have, but what willingness you have to uh, maintain that personal liability exposure. What level of exposure are you willing to tolerate where you could potentially lose some personal assets if there is a dispute with somebody? And so that's really the type of question that I approach it from. CPAs will say, well, you should be making like 40,000, 60,000 at that point, then create an LLC, which maybe there's a little bit of a revenue side because there's some expenses that have to be paid, to Secretary of State, State Corporation Commission, whatever you have in your state. So there are some considerations with that. But again, I think from my perspective and practicing with, uh, with businesses, it's really a question of liability exposure. For coaches, when we're working with individuals and families one-on-one, -on -one, because we are not fiduciaries, we're not acting as a financial planner, we are not selling insurance products, which don't have fiduciary duties anyways, I might add, but we are not under FINRA, we are not regulated by the SEC, and so we are not in the type of relationship with our clients where we're making decisions on their behalf. We're educating them and empowering them to make good decisions. So at the end of the day, the client always has the decision-making responsibility and we're not acting on their behalf. There's no agency, but the liability risk is fairly low uh, for, for most coaches. So a lot of coaches who have asked me, sole proprietor versus LLC, Starting out, if you have a fairly limited client base, you're probably fine starting out sole proprietor. That's probably okay. If it makes you feel a little bit better, maybe go get an, an errors and omissions policy for fifty, seventy-five, hundred thousand dollars. But the the risk of somebody losing something on uh, having a claim for damages against you as a coach is pretty low. 
uh, because, you know, let's say somebody has a foreclosure or they get sued on a debt. That probably was going to happen regardless of them working with you. And the idea, again, is that it's their behaviors and their ownership. So if you are a sole proprietor, have your expectations set very, very clear. That applies to sole prop or LLC. But your clients need to know what you're going to do for them, that they have full responsibility and ownership, and that you're going to be the guide. But they're the ones who have to take that responsibility, and it falls on them at the end of the day. We still want to serve them with excellence and make sure that we are giving them everything that we've got. But there isn't a fiduciary relationship when we're a coach as opposed to a financial planner. So starting out, a sole proprietorship is probably fine. Uh, but then the question that I'm sure y'all may be thinking now is like, okay, when do we get to an LLC? Uh, at that point, again, it comes down to liability exposure. Seth, I have a quick question first, if I may. Uh, you mentioned that you know we, we are the guide for our clients. Uh, do you suggest as a lawyer that we have some sort of contract in writing to indicate that prior to anything else? Because while you say that the liability is probably pretty low for most people, there are some pretty crazy people out there who are looking for that payday that you mentioned. And, and while we're not supposed to be doing any advising, we are obviously talking about money, which is a very personal thing for people. And mm -hmm. Um, because of that vulnerability, I'm just wondering, do, what do you suggest that people do in order to overprotect ourselves, especially if we are sticking with a sole proprietorship? Yeah, so having an E&O policy, Arizona emissions could be one way of doing that. Uh, and that's usually something that's not too expensive, especially if the carrier understands what we do and that we're not acting as fiduciaries uh, and we're not you know, a professional regulated occupation like CPAs or lawyers or anything like that. Sometimes it can be maybe a couple hundred dollars a year for some of these policies that will give pretty much coverage for, for what you need. Again, the liability risk is fairly low. But I think setting expectations is really a big critical component of this. And one of the ways you can do that is to have some sort of written coaching agreement uh, as a part of your onboarding process. So what I do is I have my financial snapshot form where I take my clients' information, their debts and assets, and what they want to learn about, things like that. And at the end of the form, I have the, uh, the terms and conditions for working with me, which it's only five sections or so, but I do have a disclaimer on there saying that I'm not acting as their attorney, I'm not a financial planner, not giving real estate, investment, estate planning, tax advice, or anything like that. If I notice something that I know, I'll bring it to their attention and then say, let's get you connected with this person. Uh, but for those things, having a disclaimer in a written coaching agreement that they sign, uh, e-signature is going to be perfectly fine for that. But having a checkbox as well, I have that online. But it's okay. stating, this is what I do, this is why I do not do, and that the client is expected to show up, to be engaged with you as a coach, and you as the coach obviously show up as well, saying that this is the terms on which we're going to uh, we're going to work with each other and really make sure that there's no unmet expectations because that's a big part of disputes is when there's an expectation we have on either side that's not met uh, and we don't get what we were looking for. Great distinction. Thank you. I think that's super important uh, on two ends of the spectrum. So I have, personally, I have an LLC. Um, mostly because I was like, I don't want no one to mess with my stuff. <laughs> you know, I was like, I don't care if it's like a little bit more expensive or if there's a few more things to set up in the on the front end. I don't care. I just want to make sure that everything's good to go from the get-go. Mm. So I personally did an LLC. Now, again, everyone's different, but mm. that's just my personal take. And the whole 
the whole idea behind having an agreement. Um, super important. I was one of the coaches that the first probably like four to six months or so of me coaching, I didn't have any sort of agreement. And, um, you know, if a couple things happened, nothing bad. It was more so of like, I didn't just, I just didn't like the flow of how things were going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that like, I need to have some sort of agreement that does set those expectations, both from me, but also the client. So that alone was enough for me to get that up and running. But then I thought, this is probably good to also protect myself and also to protect the client as well. So I know that I'm not the only one who's ever launched a coaching practice and didn't have an agreement. They're just eager. They're excited. They want to start working with people. We learn as we go. Yep. Yep. But if you're one of those people where you're like, oh, I don't have an agreement right now, you should probably get one Um, because, you know, for the reasons that we talked about. But then also, I also think that it also is like one of those... uh, it's like a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not validating. Maybe it is validating kind of thing for your clients to where it's like, okay, like this is like a real coach. They're, yeah, you know, it's a real business professional kind of type of thing. It's not just, yeah, like it's a professional thing. Thank things. you. That's you know, the word I was looking there's for. There's commitment yeah. that's involved. It's a legitimate framework. So there is credibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, it, that helps with even with how the, the clients show up. You know, like if they know that, like, hey, like this is a serious thing, mm-hmm. I need to take it seriously. Uh, it's going to be better for both you and the client as well. So I think that's really important to to bring up as well. Yeah. So again, it's the expectations and that's regardless of whether you're a sole proprietor or an LLC. Uh, but let's say you're, you're thinking about the LLC front. I, I, uh, I've talked to a couple of different coaches and I decided to create an LLC at a certain point for myself. Again, liability exposure is a big part of that. Cody, you kind of mentioned it. It's like, all right, I want to have my personal assets out there. But especially a a point for coaches, uh, if you start to get into this, where I think it's a good idea, is if you start to get into the realm of employee financial wellness and working with businesses, uh, Mm -hmm. these are going to be pretty much larger dollar programs. Sometimes these can be on the low end, 5,000, 10, 15, 20, maybe more, depending on the type of business that you're working with. If you're doing individual sessions, if you're doing workshops, uh, whatever it happens to be, these are going to be larger contracts and there's going to be more liability as a result of that. Uh, Not to mention the fact too, that a lot of businesses for the most part, again, they're corporations or LLCs. Uh, If we have law firms, sometimes they're limited liability partnerships, (laughs) things like that, uh, professional LLCs. When they want to bring in somebody, a professional, having another registered business, that would be the technical term for a corporation, limited liability partnership, uh, LLC, things like that, a business that is formed under the laws, that's organized under the laws of a given state, there is a certain legitimacy there because it's not just some random individual there. There's records of you know where your business is located with the Secretary of State, You've gone through formalities. And it's again, it's one of the things where it shows that you've taken the time and the effort to legitimize your business and that you're serious about it. And you're not just looking to kind of do this as a little side thing, which, you know, I'm not, not a, nothing against coaches who want to do this as a side uh, type of business. That's the way that I started. And I was a side, it was a side business for me during law school. But especially for employee financial wellness, these businesses are probably going to want to look for somebody who has the appearance of professionalism and first appearances matter. And if you have LLC in your business name, there is a certain credibility that does come with that. But granted too, let's say there's some issue where you've got a $20,000 contract uh, for your financial wellness program. Let's say somebody's dissatisfied with it. 
and let's say they decide to take you to court. Uh, you know, that's something you're, you're not going to be in small claims court for that. You'll be district court, general district court, chancery court, circuit court, whatever it happens to be uh, for your jurisdiction. Uh, your coaching agreement can determine the laws that are going to govern that as also where disputes will be resolved as well, like arbitration, mediation, and things like that. So those are things that can be included in those agreements, and I highly recommend that. Speaking to an attorney licensed in your state where your business is located, but that's a lot of liability you potentially have personally, especially if you were not performing on your end of things. So we want to make sure the LLC is there to protect you. And that is the LLC's assets that are the only ones at risk and not your personal ones. Now, in order to make the LLC work for you, the biggest thing, and a lot of small business owners don't do this well, is avoiding co-mingling. I'm sure as coaches, y'all have worked with some entrepreneurs over the years and personal and business, they're largely the same thing. Uh, they're coming out different expenses. There doesn't seem to be much difference. Uh, not only is it confusing at tax time, it's bookkeeping mess, but if there is some dispute and if you're commingling assets, you can lose the protection of the corporate veil. That's the term piercing the corporate veil. And it's mostly small, closely held corporations and smaller LLCs uh, that have the veil pierced in these types of situations. So making sure personal is personal and that business is business doing that strict separation to the greatest degree possible. That's really, really important to make sure it works for you. Uh, but if you can do that, separate business bank accounts, EIN, uh, retitling assets if you have to, if there's any sort of registered assets that you have, uh, making sure that assets are listed on uh, personal property taxes with your business uh, for licensing and things like that. All these things are really important to make sure the LLC works for you in the event of somebody trying to think that they're going to have a payday. So there's some additional requirements that come up, but a lot of benefits that are there too. Initially, if you form an LLC, it's going to be a disregarded entity for tax purposes. So it's going to be taxed the same way you were as a sole proprietor. It's going to flow through to your personal tax return, to your 1040. There will be a Schedule C where the revenues and the expenses will be, and then that the net profit of the business will be on your personal tax return, your gross income. If you decide that you'd rather make yourself an employee and run payroll, your LLC can elect to be taxed as a corporation though. You have to file a form with the IRS, either within, I think it's about two and a half months or so of formation or around the start of when the tax year begins so that you can be taxed as a corporation and then run payroll on yourself. And that can save on self-employment taxes if you're able to do that. Uh, my recommendation there is to stop, talk with the CPA to see if that makes sense for you if you have an LLC or if staying on an owner-drawn distribution type basis is best for you. Uh, consult with professionals to work on these things like an attorney, like a CPA, like maybe a business coach or a sales coach. And one thing I'd that I love to say uh, when it comes to small business matters, financial coaching, estate planning, is that the only thing more expensive than a professional is an amateur. Make sure that we're getting professional help and that we're not cheaping out so that we don't get cheap results down the line. Yeah, that's that's really good, man. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard that that uh, saying, the only thing more expensive than a professional is an amateur. But man, oh man, is that true? Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's basically like the same thing of like, uh, I've, heard, I've heard something similar in a different area of life to where people say like, hey, you know, eating healthy or taking care of your health is expensive, 
but so is it, it, it like if you don't do that later on down in, in your life it's going to be very expensive right yep. so it's kind of the same thing but in a different way but that's uh that's very very wise so he just had a mic drop moment guys so if you want to like back this up 30 <laughs> seconds hear it again write it down that's super important so um yeah, I'm, I'm actually like, I'm really, really curious about, you know, well, first of all, all of this information has been super, super helpful. Um, I think that, you know, like I mentioned, we talked about this stuff previously on different episodes, but I think that we've definitely gotten into a different layer uh, with you, which we super appreciate. Uh, lots of valuable information. Um, but with that being said, I'm super, super curious about what sort of value you have to bring to the table around the estate planning stuff. Because if I'll be honest with you, Seth, that kind of stuff, it's not my jam. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. I don't really know a ton. I know the basics, you know, but I'm not like super far into the weeds of it. So, you know, why don't you just kind of share with us, uh, your knowledge in that, you know, like I know that you work with people pretty directly on that kind of stuff. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, like what's some of the, like, you must have this kind of stuff and then maybe even expanding into the, Hey, it would also be cool if you had this going on too. So one of the things that, that I like to say when it comes to estate planning is that everybody has an estate plan. The only question is whether it is your plan or the government's plan because there's a statutory default for a number of different things, whether it's when we pass away or if we are incapacitated, and that's the fallback. It is cumbersome, it is expensive, and it is public. That's going through intestacy if we pass away without a will or a trust, and that's a conservatorship or a guardianship if we do not have powers of attorney in place. So that's the default. That's what the state legislature in all 50 states have. And there's variations on that. So I won't try to say what it is in every single state. Uh, But that's the default plan that we have. It's what the General Assembly in your state thinks your wishes are, their best guesstimate. But a lot of times, though, that's not what our wishes are. We don't want to just distribute things to our spouse in one share and then our kids equally in other shares. Uh, we don't necessarily want to have things pass that way. We may have different plans, different ideas, different values. We don't want to have a judge ordering it according to what the General Assembly thinks. We want to do that ourselves and make sure that our legacy is protected from unnecessary court costs and attorney's fees, especially if somebody tries to come in and mess the whole thing up. We want to make sure that there are clear instructions so that our legacy is preserved and our loved ones are cared for well. So that's the idea behind estate planning is that we're getting ahead of a very difficult time, whether it's incapacitation or when we pass away, but it's a way of saying to our loved ones, I care about you, I love you, and I want to minimize this burden during a very difficult time. So just some very broad, broad things on estate planning there. Uh, Another broad thing that I want to say too is that estate planning is not just for people who are nearing the end of life. And it's not just for people who have tons of assets. It's not just for the affluent, it's for right here, right now, for everyday people, regardless of wealth level. Uh, If you are a small business owner, especially if you have employees, it is critical you have something in place for estate planning. If you are a parent, uh, married or unmarried, 
Uh, it is critical that you have estate planning documents in place so that if something happens to you, your child will properly be looked after. If you are uh, any number of different things, if you are a parent of a college student, it is important. I have an article on this on my law practice website, by the way. It's important to have powers of attorney in place to make sure that you would be able to act on behalf of your student who is an adult at age 18 in almost all of the 50 states. You are not able to act on their behalf the way that you've been used to as a parent uh, because they are legally an adult and you are no longer able to do so because of the way that the law changes on that. So your student, when they're away at college, they have to create it. They're the principal. Uh, you would be the agent as the parent. They have to authorize you to act on their behalf in certain conditions. But in the event of an emergency, especially if they're hours away, uh, having those documents in place, powers of attorney for health care for, and for property, those are things that enable you to communicate with healthcare providers, with the university, financial institutions, in the event something goes wrong and there has to be quick action. So these things are all very important regardless of what state of life we're in. Different types of uh, instruments have different purposes. Not everybody needs to have a trust per se, but there's a lot of people that it can benefit. Usually, whether you have a trust or not, having a will is going to go alongside that and some different things that are going to be included in there that you can't do in a trust. But there's a, a number of different documents that come into play and what is best for you as an individual is going to depend on your circumstances, your objectives, your budget, and a number of different things in there. It is an investment to do, but it's preventing further headache, heartache, and expense down the road by getting these things in place right now. Yeah, that was actually one one thing that I was curious about. Um, you know, because you hear a lot of different types of things with a lot of different types of people. And some people are like, do a will. Some people are like, do a trust. You know, like, and I'm sure, like you had just mentioned, um, there's, there's, you can do both kind of thing, right? But I think that for the people who aren't as well coursed in this area who are listening or who are speaking in this very moment right now, like me. Um, what's the difference between a will and a trust? What are the pros and cons of each one? And, you know, what type of person would you say would benefit from a will over a trust? And then also from a trust over a will? Sure. So let's kind of have some broader differences and then we'll kind of narrow down a little bit here as we go. So a will uh, that is something that's going, that guarantees probate for one. That's one of the big things. Uh, I've seen, I don't know if y'all have seen this, maybe you have. Somebody a few years ago posted this thing where if you have powers of attorney and will in place, you can bypass probate. That is, that's false. If you have a will, it guarantees going to probate. The public process where there's going to be court costs and attorney's fees to publicly transfer your assets to whoever your beneficiaries are. A will is a probate mechanism for the transfer of property to somebody else upon death of the testator. That's the person who makes the will. A trust, on the other hand, is generally a non-probate transfer. Uh, if it is a non-testamentary trust, meaning it was not created under a will, it's going to be a private way of administering the assets that it holds and distributing it to the beneficiaries and having whatever conditions or whatever terms there are in there accomplished. Most states have adopted a body of law called the Uniform Trust Code. Uh, not all, but most states have by this point. There's a lot of flexibility that's in there. With a trust, you can accomplish almost any type of uh, objective that you want, almost. Not, 
not anything exactly, but trusts are very flexible interests, especially states like Tennessee here. Our trust law is so flexible that in the Tennessee Bar Association Journal, there was an attorney who wrote an article about making sure it's not so flexible that there are no fiduciary duties, which is essential to having a valid trust, making sure that the trustee has fiduciary duties that are owed to the beneficiary. So very flexible ways of doing things. It's private. Uh, it's everything that's in the trust is not going through probate. It will pass privately, more efficiently, uh, and it's not going to be subject to public record or court supervision. So those are kind of the two big differences that are in there. Some things that wills do that trusts cannot do, one is going to be naming guardians for minor children. A trust cannot do that. Let's say you're a single parent or let's say you're married, but let's say something happens to both of you simultaneously. You can put in there who the guardian is going to be that you name uh, for your child. Uh, otherwise, the court is going to do that. It'll often be a family member, but maybe your family members are not who you would want to do that uh, for one reason or another. Maybe you have somebody else that needs to be in a will to direct the court to uh, transfer, I would, not ownership of the child, to transfer legal custody of the child to that person there. So that's, that's really one of the big things uh, that's there. If you have a trust arrangement, Normally, it's customary practice to have what's called a pour-over will, and it basically catches anything the trust does not include and says it will go from here from my probate estate into the trust and then pass to my beneficiaries according to the trust terms. So that's usually the way that those two things work there. Wills are generally going to be less expensive upfront than trusts are, uh, depending on the provisions you want to have. It can be a very, very short document. It doesn't have to be any particular length necessarily, uh, but the more provisions you have, obviously the more work is involved and the more expensive it's going to be. Trusts tend to be more, several times more expensive upfront than wills, but the big benefit that trusts have is the private administration and the avoidance of probate. Probate can sometimes take 5% or a little bit more of the estate's value in court costs and attorney's fees. It can be six months to two years for probate, maybe longer if somebody decides to contest your will. Whereas with the trust, we're really front-loading a lot of that expense. Let's say on the low end of trust, maybe $2,2500 or so, maybe upwards of three to 4000 depending on what you want. But if your estate is going to be, let's say it's 5% of, uh, of let's say even $100,000, that's something that you're technically coming out ahead on by front-loading that expense. So these are some of the differences that are there. Uh, trust, again, very flexible, front-loading the expense. It's not necessarily for everybody because, you know, we don't want to, obviously, if we're coming from a financial coach's mindset, I'm not going to say, yeah, go do that and, you know, finance it and pay it on your 30% credit card. No, I wouldn't advise my client to right. go, to go right. do that. But long term, a lot of savings that are there, but each person's uh, situation is going to vary. Uh, so somebody who is 20 years old, I probably wouldn't suggest that unless they have some massive business that they're doing. Most folks don't. Probably just a will is fine. Uh, but especially if you've got minor children, that's really where a trust can be a very great way to make sure that their uh, the inheritance is protected. It doesn't have to be overseen by the court. And you can set conditions to make sure that your kids are going to be blessed by it and not burdened by what you're giving to them. 
Okay. Seth, you mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, when we were talking about the business structure, you mentioned having uh, the combination of flexibility and protection. So I would love to have you talk about that in the context of what you're discussing right now. How can somebody use a, a will and or trust in order to provide that protection, but still maintain flexibility? Sure. So with the, the instruments that I'm referring to really right now, it's primarily revocable living trust. That's mainly what I'm discussing. Uh, in terms of the liability protection that a revocable living trust gives, it's, it's really not for the most part. It's a grantor trust uh, under state and federal law. And when there is a grantor trust where there's still powers to amend or revoke the trust, it's going to be disregarded for tax purposes while the settler is still alive. The settler is the person who creates the trust. And for liability purposes, you can be liable as well for those things uh, because you have those retained powers that are there. In order to have asset protection, we're talking more irrevocable trusts where things are going out of your control, out of your estate to a third party managing those things on your behalf. Uh, there are asset protection trusts. There's life insurance trusts. There's a number of different things that are irrevocable. But once they're out of your control, they're out of your control and somebody else is managing them. There's a lot yeah. of complexity that comes with that. Uh, most folks uh, are not necessarily going to need that, especially if we're dealing with tax planning because the state tax exemption right now is just under $13 million. It's scheduled to come down in 2026 with an inflation adjustment. So it's probably going to be in the neighborhood of maybe seven to $8 million or so. So still not many people are going to have that, but some will. Uh, and having some tax planning maybe in there, making use of the annual exclusion to give to other people, uh, charitable giving or using irrevocable trust to get things out of your estate so that your estate value is lower than the estate tax level when that time comes. Does that help? It does. And actually, I think while most people are not going to need that irrevocable uh, irrevocable uh, trust, I think that's what a lot of people think of when they hear trust. Mm -hmm. And so I, I and I, I see Cody nodding his head. Um, I think a lot of coaches think that, too. So if you could just in a I mean, you just did a great job distinguishing the two. Um, but that's mostly because I'm familiar with the difference. So if you could just say, you know, in a couple of bullet points, what is the biggest difference between revocable and irrevocable other than the obvious that one is revocable and one is not. <laughs> the, the big difference here between the two is that assets that are in a revocable trust, they are still in your estate for tax purposes. Uh, you are still the owner of them. Uh, you can am amend or revoke the trust instrument at any time. And there's not going to be asset protection against the claims of creditors. They can still go after assets regardless of whether they're in your name as an individual or if in, their, in your name as trustee. So either way, with a revocable trust, that does not offer you liability protection. The revocable trust, on the other hand, if it's not in your name, not if you're not the trustee, uh, and if you do not have the power to amend or revoke it, that can offer creditor protection. Sometimes irrevocable trusts are used in Medicaid planning as well, depending on mm -hmm. uh, the stage of life that you're in. There's, uh, there's other options that are out there as well for Medicaid planning uh, other than using that. Uh, but it's really, the main difference is revocable. You do not have asset protection, irrevocable, you do have it, but there's significant downsides to putting something in somebody else's control because you don't have that anymore. So that's really, we're talking with an attorney to see what's best for you individually in your state, having that consultation to help you identify the right instrument is critical.
Yeah. And even then, don't you have to go back? Like, I think when they do Medicaid stuff, don't they go back like five years anyway? So if you're if you're trying to do that in order to protect those assets, you really have to be able to trust the person that you are putting in charge of that for forever. <laughs> so it's not it's not just like, a, oh, you know, I'm sick now and I, I want to make sure I protect this. So I'm going to put this in place. It, it takes a long time for it to actually work. Correct. There's a five year look back period for Medicaid eligibility. And if you gave significant assets away to somebody else, uh, there can be a blackout period for which you're not eligible for Medicaid purposes. Uh, I've heard some rumors, seen some things online. Medicaid may want to extend that out to seven years, actually. So I, don't, so I don't know if slash when that may be the case. But again, the thing we have to remember here as well is that Medicaid is a program for people who are impoverished who don't have the assets to handle those things. So... Mm -hmm. When working with clients as coach, you know, this is where we're talking about long-term care insurance fairly early on, you know, mid to late 50s or so is a good idea to make sure that they have some benefit for that. Otherwise, the estate, uh, except largely for a car and the primary residence, if they intend to return or if a spouse returns there, most other things are subject to uh, being taken by Medicaid or being subject to Medicaid estate recovery later mm -hmm. on. Um, most states will take retirement accounts. There's only a few that exempt 401ks and IRAs from that. Most of them that's included in your estate for Medicaid eligibility. Uh, but again, there's the blackout period that could be applied uh, if you're in that situation. So again, consulting with somebody, if you're in that circumstance, consulting with a Medicaid and an elder law estate planning attorney, those aren't the specialties that I have. I have some some knowledge on it, You know, just enough to kind of know when I see an issue and maybe refer to a colleague. But if you sure. are in that type of situation, an elder law and Medicaid specialist is really who to talk to to make sure it's done properly, because if it's done improperly, the consequences can be quite expensive. Yeah, makes sense. Thank you for putting that so succinctly for our listeners today. So I promise that I'm not trying to get free advice here. Right. <laughs> so not it's, be legal advice. <laughs> right. It's more Make so him sign like, it. <laughs> it's it's more so of like uh an example purpose okay. kind of thing. So for someone like myself who has minor children, um, is a business owner and has a primary residence and three rental properties on top of that as well, would you suggest a will and a trust? Let's say hypothetically, sense. let's say hypothetically, you're somebody who's coming to me. I've actually got a prospective client with a, with a fairly similar situation. So let's, let's imagine that client there. That's probably a situation where it may be a good idea. Uh, because again, with minor children, uh, they cannot inherit, they cannot legally own property until they reach the age of majority in your state, which is 18 in most states. I think a couple have it at 19, but it's generally going to be age 18. And that would have to be held in either a guardianship estate or transferred to a uniform uh, uniform transfer to minors act account until they reach 18 or 21. Uh, but once they reach that point, uh, everything that's in there is legally theirs. They can do whatever they want with that. On the other hand, using a trust arrangement, we can accomplish almost anything that we would like to. Something that I'm actually a fan of, and I have this as a safe provision for trust agreements of mine, is that for children or nieces, nephews, whoever it happens to be, uh, you can have a, what's called a W-2 provision in your trust for how it will be administered upon your passing. 
so that it'll basically be a match for whatever your beneficiary makes at their earned uh, income. So they can start a business, they can work at their job, and then whatever they earn will be matched from trust funds so that it incentivizes work, but also still gives them their inheritance as well. So that may be one option. You may want to say at 25, they'll get this much. At 35, they'll get this much. There can be when they buy a house, we'll match their down payment. When they get married, we'll do this. A lot of different things that will be in there that you can accomplish with a trust that are more tricky and challenging to do with just a will. Again, because if yeah. you create a testamentary trust, that generally has to be overseen by the courts. Uh, it has to be reported to the court. There's court costs. You're going to have to engage with an attorney a lot of times for that. And it, it's all public record, too. So there's some significant downsides to having a, a trust under a will. Uh, so for that type of situation, hypothetically speaking, that can be a great uh, example of a way to do that. But it all comes down to what do you value? What are your objectives? And what's the budget that you're working with and making sure that whoever you decide to engage with is going to listen to what your values are, really listen to your objectives and take the time to truly understand that so that they make the best recommendation for you and not merely for what the attorney's rec uh, financial interests are. We have ethical duties to avoid conflicts of interest, including with our clients, uh, so that there's not any pecuniary incentive to suggest our client do something that really is not in their best interest. So we're under that duty. Does it always happen? Not perfectly 100% of the time. Uh, but for anybody who's wondering, the best way to get in touch with an attorney who handles this is to, if you know somebody who is an attorney locally to you, ask for a referral for estate planning for a small business. Because in the legal profession, it's a fairly small community uh, and reputations spread fairly quickly. So they will know who to go to and who probably to avoid as well. But Cody, just just to kind of wrap up that point for you, that can be a situation where it is a good idea, uh, but in terms of determining as a matter of finality, if it is, consult with an estate planning attorney in your state to make that decision. Yeah, I love that, man. Um, so much good information there. I really like the idea about the whole W-2 thing because, man, I'll tell you what, I want my kids to work. <laughs> I want them to feel like they're, like they're earning it versus just having it handed out, you know? So I, I really like that idea. I never even knew that was a thing to be honest with you. So that's very appealing to me. Um, so thank you for sharing that, man. And just thank you for sharing the wealth of knowledge that you have, man. Like I know for a fact that I got a lot of value from today and I know for a fact that everybody else listening uh, did as well. So uh, we really, really appreciate you coming on, man, and sharing everything and being so open and honest with everything as well. Where can people find you if they ever want to reach out or, you know, connect with you or anything like that? So if you, so I've got uh, my financial coaching practice, still do that. You can look me up, financial coach Seth Connell. I've got a Facebook page, website, uh, and I work with folks across the whole country, across the U.S. Uh, so I, I like to really focus on working with millennial professionals. Again, folks who are engineers, accountants, attorneys. Uh, healthcare professionals, kind of 25 to 45 is really the demographic that I love to work with coaching-wise. Uh, mm -hmm. But for the legal side, I'm licensed in the state of Tennessee, uh, and I can work with folks on you know pretty much anywhere in the state uh, for what they need, especially for small business type of matters. Uh, and if folks want to get in touch with me, if they are Tennessee residents, they can go to my website, which is going to be connell.legal, C-O-N-N-E-L-L.legal. Uh, they can reach me on my office number at 629-777-622. Uh, 
Uh, if they'd like to talk about the idea of having a consultation, which I have free consultations, uh, and if they just need to bounce some ideas off, I'd love to be a resource for them as well. Uh, but for everything we've talked about here, uh, just I always have to put disclaimers out like this. This is not advice for any particular person or situation to determine what is going to be best for you. Uh, make sure you consult with an attorney licensed in your state. This is for educational purposes to help you have a better understanding of the way that these things work so that when you engage with an attorney licensed in your state, you have a better understanding and a good foundation of those things when these topics come up. So just have to always put that out. Some CYA lawyering is definitely needed on podcasts and different episodes like that. <laughs> Makes sense. We get it. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, we'll, we'll be sure to put all of that stuff in the show notes so people can reach out if they if they feel like they want to or need to. Um, and again, man, we, we want to say thank you for your time. Um, this was great, man. And uh, we'll be sure to keep in touch and, you know, maybe we'll have you back on in the future. But if not, we'll definitely be connecting with you in the uh, the Facebook the Facebook group as a bare minimum. So that's great, man. Um, feel like we made a new friend today. So <laughs> always love that, man. Um, so yeah, guys, thank you guys for tuning in this week. Be sure to check us out next week as well. And uh, like we said at the top of the episode, join the Facebook group, share, like, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we would really appreciate that because it keeps the gears a moving. So until next week, you enjoy your week. See you guys. Thank you for listening to the Financial Coaches Podcast, brought to you by New Money Habits and Sizemore Financial Coaching. Submit your questions to our hosts by emailing podcast at newmoneyhabits.com. Be sure to subscribe to be notified of future episodes and join our growing group of like-minded coaches on Facebook. And until next time, happy coaching. Music provided by Summer School.